You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We've been hearing about the efforts being made to do a better job of managing tourists to the islands, but what do residents think about how well we are doing? Today we hear about the latest survey results uh, conducted by Omnitrack for the Hawaii Tourism Authority. Here's HTA spokesman Ilihia Johnson. You know, the resident sentiment survey has been measuring the feeling of Kama'aina about tourism since 1988. And it's one of the longest running, if not the longest running, survey of its type amongst destinations in the U.S. Other destinations are starting to measure this stuff or started later, but since 1988, we've been measuring this. And so over time, there are elements of it that have remained the same that give us that long tracking. But recently, we've added some more questions to help understand the community's feelings, the community's response, and the community's desire to our efforts in destination management. And those are some of the new questions that you see on this survey. We have had the opportunity during this pandemic to reset. You know, we hit the 10 million mark, and there was pushback, and we were seeing it in different areas. But what can you tell us, uh, you know, about this round of, uh, of survey results? Just before the pandemic essentially shut down travel to the Hawaiian Islands and everywhere. HTA adopted a new strategic plan that reoriented our work towards four interacting pillars of community, natural resources, Hawaiian culture, and brand management around the world. And so it was a fortuitous time that the pandemic gave us the pause to reset, realign some of this stuff, and really go out into the communities through our destination management action plan process to learn about the specific pain points in each community, to learn about the ideas and the priorities and the visions of communities about the future of tourism in their areas. And so a lot of the efforts that we're undertaking now are rooted in that destination management action plan, are rooted in the strategic plan. And I think we're starting to see some feedback to that in this wave of the resident sentiment survey. So the survey basically says that the people who are aware of the Malama campaign and, and the efforts to implement regenerative tourism, uh, that it, it sounds like they think we're on the right track, but there's still a large portion of the community that doesn't know that, that we're actively doing this. Certainly, we have a lot of work to go. But we're also quite proud of the work that we have been able to advance in partnership with communities, in partnership with nonprofit organizations across Hawaii, in partnership with other state, county, and federal agencies, because ultimately managing something as complex a system as tourism is not the work of any one agency. There are multiple jurisdictions for things. There are multiple stakeholders. But ultimately, we're accountable to our communities. We all serve the same communities. Well, you know, we have seen, you know, the concerns that residents have about illegal vacation rentals in their neighborhood. And there's been some pushback uh, on some of the islands about building, you know, new hotels or timeshares. But what else can you share with us? I'd like folks to know that the Hawaii Tourism Authority has been actively engaged in those efforts to figure out ways to manage vacation rentals in neighborhoods and communities. The most effective tool that we have as a state to really manage the number of visitors who come is managing the number of accommodations available to them. And so that's why we've placed a big emphasis on illegal short-term vacation rental regulation at the county levels, 
and also very closely tracking the kinds of decisions that are being made around limiting new construction and things like that, as well as the individual projects. And the, the residents, you know, seem to agree that using, you know, some of the money that's generated to manage tourism, you know, is a good thing. Is We need to be doing, you know, more of this, whether it's uh, charging fees at the at the parks, but certainly there there's just a desire to do better. Absolutely, you know, when we think about this term over tourism that gets used a lot, we think of the big number, right? You mentioned it earlier in 2019, over 10 million visitors. But when you get down into the weeds of it, it's about too many people at one place at any one time, and so solving for that takes us into the realm of things like reservation systems. We saw the latest one implemented at, at Le'ahi, at Diamond Head State Monument, requiring reservations to go up and take that hike in the morning. Extremely popular hike, but with everybody going one time, the infrastructure couldn't handle it. And so managing capacity with things like reservation systems is a great way to sort of even that number out throughout the day, throughout the week, or whatever it may be. And so, in fact, just yesterday, I was over at Honolulu Hale um, as the Council Parks Committee was discussing some of the challenges at Cocoa Head District Park and the Cocoa Crater Trail. And so there are places all over Hawaii that are in need of some kind of management. And so to the extent that the Hawaii Tourism Authority can help assist with that, help convene conversations, we're ready and willing to do so. You know, and I'm just scanning, you know, the survey results, uh, 67% um, felt that the island is being run for tourists at the expense of local people. You know, I think there was a, 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 a show on CNN recently, you know, that expressed some of that sentiment um, that, that, that the communities are being hurt by being overrun. Um, so, you know, how do we do a better job of, of dealing with that? Yeah, you know, I watched that show and great stuff, um, important stories to be told um, on that national platform. A lot of the challenges kind of predate our highest numbers of tourism, right? Affordable housing was a challenge in Hawaii before 2019. Homelessness was a challenge in Hawaii before 2019. And so... Tourism definitely has a part to play in looking for those solutions, but it's not tourism alone. And our work, even more so recently, has shown us that working together and convening all the stakeholders is important, no matter what the challenge is ahead of us. So what can you share with us about the additional questions that you answered in this survey that maybe weren't present in the earlier ones? What else are we tracking? Sure, sure. So... For a long time, the Resident Sentiment Survey served, it served as a report card of sorts. Our hope is that with some of the additional questions we added around destination management, around support for Hawaiian language, Hawaiian culture, community events, and natural resources, our hope is that these additional data points will help guide our efforts, guide our allocations of resources in the future um, this, the results of this survey were presented to our board of directors yesterday, and I could already see the see the gears turning, thinking about how we can use this information, use this 
pretty real-time feedback from the community to better guide our efforts and allocations of resources. What do you think we'll see moving forward, you know, before the end of the year? What other changes do you think might be made? That's a great question. Um, you know, last week we were on Kauai for our first, our first kind of big community meetings around tourism management since the pandemic hit. It really kind of is amazing to me that we went through this whole destination management action plan process all virtually for the most part. Uh, and we were able to collect that feedback, those uh, priorities and thoughts from the community. And we were able to put that together into a plan and start taking action. And so, as I mentioned last week, we were on Kauai. We had meetings in Lihue and Princeville, talking story with folks. Uh, and we want them to know that we hear their concerns and that we are working toward them. A lot of these issues are complex and will take a lot of work to solve. But nonetheless, we're committed, and we're not going anyplace. We're going we're gonna to work on these issues side-by-side side with community, other agencies, community groups. And we really thank everybody who is willing to work with us on these issues. All right, so you're doubling down, uh, and then you have uh, community meetings uh, that will be set for uh, the other islands, Maui, Big Island, uh, in the months to come. We're working on those. Uh, we're also looking at opportunities to take our board meetings into community. If you were watching our board meeting yesterday, you might have heard a little bit of discussion on that point, but there's nothing like presence. And so now that the pandemic is to some extent subsiding, we're definitely looking to get back out there. That was HTA spokesman Elihia Johnson talking to us about the results of a survey of residents about the return of visitors to the islands, all part of an effort to better manage tourism in the islands. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. You know, we'll be talking to the Honolulu Zoo's education director about the animals and sleep later in the show. So we thought we'd test your knowledge of our local attraction. It started out a part of Kapi'olani Regional Park, a 300-acre parcel of Waikiki marshland that was developed by King Kalakaua in 1877 to have a space to display his private bird collection. In 1914, the city assumed responsibility for the park and began adding animals to the collection, starting with a monkey, a bear, and an African elephant. In 1947, 42 acres of the Kapi'olani Regional Park uh, were officially designated as the Honolulu Zoo. In the years since, the layout of the displays have been reshuffled twice, and the animals that call the area home have grown to over 900. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're going all the way back to the beginning, to the first residence. We want to know the name of that African elephant that helped to turn a corner of Kapi'olani Park 
in the Honolulu Zoo. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets our HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. We have been hearing about athletic competitions this week, and today we look toward October when the Ironman World Championship in Kona resumes after it was paused during the pandemic. The elite competition took a detour for 2021 planning on a race uh, in Utah, in uh, of all places, uh, not, not the Big Island, but the variants pushed that event into spring of this year. We talked to Diana Birch about how the race is poised to come back to Kona in October bigger than ever. Yeah, we're really excited. This year, we will actually be hosting two days of racing at the 2022 Ironman World Championship in Kailua, Kona. But to your question regarding us being in St. George, Utah, it kind of came together as almost you'd think of a couple sister cities, the way the counties work together here in the county of Hawaii and and then in the city of St. George. But when we realized the island wasn't ready for us to return to racing here on the island, we started working with St. George, and they welcomed us to host the 2021 Ironman World Championship in St. George, Utah, in the greater Zion area. And the county actually was appreciative of the fact that, that the race could go on, that it wouldn't be another year that we were unable to host it. And we had some presence of people in the county that, that were in Hawaii, and we had Island Breeze, from a cultural perspective, join us there. And so we took a, the spirit of Aloha all the way to Utah. So it was really wonderful. And so, gosh, so that was held earlier this year for yes, that was 2021. Yes, to 2022. So the 2021 Ironman World Championship was held May 7th, 2022. Okay. And then we're still a go-do for October in Kona. Yes, this year, October 6th and 8th are the race days for the 2022 Ironman World Championship. And it kind of has progressed in that manner as we were trying to navigate through the cancellations and the movements from races being deferred. But our athletes start qualifying for the following season in the, in the previous year. So athletes that were competing in the 2020 Ironman World Championship would have qualified as far back as 2019. So we'll have athletes that will be on the starting line this year in Kona that have actually qualified as far back as 2019. And then, as everybody probably recalls, you know, we had these ups and downs of, hey, things are looking good, and we got back to racing, and so we started qualifying again, and then things took another turn with COVID, and things weren't looking so good. So along that way, as I think anybody in the world and anybody in business went through, you think you're getting on track, and you the number one word during that time was you pivot, you make changes, and you're like, okay, we're going to go back to racing. And then it seems like you'd make all these changes to get on the right track. And then you'd feel like you'd take 10 steps backwards. So 
during that time of having qualifying races that, that did end up happening later in 2020 and then early in 2021, we continued to have athletes qualify. So we have a two days of racing that will be taking place this year. Okay, so how many people are you hoping to attract this year? So as far as athletes go, we'll probably have over 2,500 athletes on each day, so on the Thursday and then again on the Saturday. The professional women will all race on Thursday along with our complete women's field. And then we will have some male age groups that are also racing on Thursday. And then the Saturday race will be our professional men's field as well as all of our professional age group men will race on Saturday. How does this work? You know, because this competition is intense. And if uh, you have a cadre of, of athletes that have already done the Utah one, uh, earlier this year, you know, I don't know, are there some that are opting not to compete this fall? You know, I think there there were some athletes that chose to compete in 2021, but these athletes, as you say, they're competitive and they're incredibly fit, and some of them, you know, outside of the professional athletes, the age group athletes, it's their lifestyle. So there are some that would have qualified, competed in 2021, just in May, but they'll be here in Kona as well. Um, some of them would have gone out and say, okay, I'm going to do that 21 race. I'm going to compete in St. George, and I'm going to qualify for 2022 as well. So they'd have the opportunity to compete here as well. You know, it, it definitely is a dedication and a commitment to racing and the sport of Ironman. But, yes, it is, it's tough. It's impressive what these athletes are capable of doing. But we will see them. We'll, we'll have some of those people that were in both places this year. And so how do our numbers compare, let's say, to pre-pandemic days? You know, this year we'll have more athletes on any one of those days, on the Thursday or Saturday, than we have had in one day of racing in Kona before. Obviously, the two days is more athletes than we've ever had, but our numbers were right around 2550 in 2019, and we're just going to have probably over 2500 we're anticipating on each one of those days. On Thursday, just over 2500 and the same on Saturday. It's a little difficult to predict exactly how many people are going to show up, but that's what we're anticipating. And then of your athletes, like how many come from abroad or, or how many are just from the mainland? You know, this year, again, it, it's really difficult to tell. We typically will have more U.S. athletes at the World Championship in Hawaii than any other athlete, but it is a global, international race, and athletes will come from all over the world, and in the upwards of 70-plus countries, regions, and territories will be represented here. Our athletes will actually, they, they go around the globe to qualify to get a spot to compete at the Ironman World Championship. So they can't, that typical registration for our races elsewhere outside of the World Championship, you go online and you can register for a race. And that, that's the same with Honolulu Marathon. For their age group athletes, they would go online and register. For the World Championship, you actually have to go and compete in a race and you compete against other athletes in your age group. And for the Ironman World Championship here in Hawaii, it's typically you're finishing you know, in, in the top bracket of your age group, first, second, third place. And so we have races in Europe, Middle East, Africa, Asia, Australia, New Zealand. And so it definitely brings a different mix of athletes or, you know, a wider variety of athletes to this event. 
And so, gosh, it, uh, I imagine, though, if you've got those kinds of numbers, that's going to be a nice shot in the arm for the Big Island's economy. Yeah, we're excited about that. And I think as we've gone through the pandemic, we all see the challenges that it's created. In 2019, we did an economic impact study here in the state by an outside organization, Mark Rich Studies. And the economic impact in 2019 to the state was over $72 million. We anticipate with the excitement of people coming back and more athletes coming to the island and bringing more guests, that, that that economic impact will be even more significant than it was in 2019. Yeah, so I, I think the, the, that pent-up demand will make for some exciting uh, competitions over those two days. Yeah, can you, can you <laughs> imagine? They're definitely waiting to get to Kona. It's a dream for so many athletes all over the world. You know, we're here on this incredible island in this amazing state we live in. And we know here on the island that, you know, the Ironman World Championship happens. What I think sometimes we don't have the same awareness of is how big this island is around the world, you know, in sport. And how it, for so many athletes that are in the sport of triathlon and that compete in Ironman races, their goal and their dream is to be in Kona to start and then to cross the finish line on Lee Drive. For that little piece of that dream that so many had been focusing on for so long, to not be able to achieve it is going, there's going to be a lot of excitement here this October. That was Kona Ironman's Diana Birch talking with us about resuming the elite race that will kick off in October. For many, it will be a welcome boost for the Big Island's economy. And as a reminder, for many of these races, there will be traffic detours or closures, so plan accordingly. Civil Beats Reality Check today uh, talks about the tragic fire in a city ambulance that killed a patient and critically injured a paramedic. Reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us today. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, I mean, this story is, is so sad. Uh, it was mm-hmm. so unexpected uh, and just, uh, oh gosh, it's a, a, a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, and what... Um EMS director Jim Ireland has said, um, especially comparing um, with the other EMS folks and with their um, their experience combined with more than a hundred years, none of all of them basically said that they've never seen anything like this before. Yeah, and this happened uh, over in Kailua at uh, Castle Medical Center. Yeah, and they were responding to a call of a 91-year-old who was being um, transported. We don't know the his condition during that time before the fire, but um, they were um, driving him from Kaneohe Bay to uh, Kailua. Right. And they had uh, just, what, pulled in, right? Uh, uh, backing in? I don't know how that all works. They just pulled in into the driveway until all of a sudden the the vehicle ignited and then all of a sudden um, erupted into a fire. And now they normally have a couple of uh, EMTs or paramedics uh, you know, with the ambulance. And I understand that one a person, the driver, he was not injured. Yeah, so there, um, that Kaneohe crew was only of two folks, one paramedic and the EMT who was driving the vehicle. The EMT who was driving the vehicle wasn't injured. From what Jim Ireland had said, he immediately jumped out and opened the back door and was able to save the paramedic, but the 91-year-old patient was unfortunately, um, he couldn't be saved. 
And so, gosh, you know, we don't know about the cause. Lots of speculation. You know, was it due to the oxygen tanks on board? I know there have been numerous incidents uh, involving tanks, um, you know, on the mainland, but we don't know exactly what happened here. No, and um, from yesterday's press conference, um, me and the other reporters, we were trying to get a little bit more information, but Jim Ireland said um, the Honolulu Fire Department, along with several agencies, they're still investigating, and we don't know the timeline of when that investigation will be done. Um, but he didn't want to uh, speculate. All he could say was it could range either from the, EM the EMS's medical equipment to the ambulance itself, um, but he didn't want to speculate. And the ambulance was fairly new. Yeah, I was only six years old. Yeah, so I know they'll be looking into a number of things, but this is a multi-agency uh, probe, right? You got fire department, um, feds. Yeah, you got the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, Hawaii's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and even our State Department of Labor and Industrial Relations and the Honolulu Police Department. And so, gosh, uh, anything else you can share with us about the the condition of the of the paramedic? Um, we we tried to ask that at yesterday's press conference, but um, the family requested that be kept confidential just out of the respect of the family. But um, Jim Ireland did send me a GoFundMe um, about the paramedic um, who was injured and in the hospital. And so far, I'm looking at it right now. Um, he's married. He has um, two kids. And so far, the GoFundMe... Um, their goal is to raise $80,000. And so far, I'm seeing, last time I checked this morning, it was a little over 600 uh, donors, but now there's 768 donors. And now um, the GoFundMe has raised $67,382 so far. Yeah, I think folks just want to do something because they know that, uh, you know, the city's emergency medical services department, you know, the people that work there work very hard. They come to our aid when we call 911 mm -hmm. and we need help. And uh, the whole idea is that we, you know, they, they work to help save lives, and so it's very tragic that, that uh, we lost this one patient, and uh, everybody's um, pulling for, for uh, the city employee. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you for having me. We have been talking to Cassie Ordonio for today's Reality Check. You can read her story. Uh, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org. The field of autism research has a troubling history of neglecting the needs of autistic people. We talked to two researchers who combine their expertise and lived experiences as autistic people and learn how research can be made much more meaningful. Plus, the creativity behind the scientific method. That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. 
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Around this time, Oahu would be hosting the Greek Festival at McCoy Pavilion. The city is, however, knee-deep in renovation, so it's not available as a venue. But many other cultural and ethnic festivals in Hawaii are or have resumed. HPR's Jaina Omae joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Um, thank you for having me. So as many of us know, uh, there are dozens of ethnic and cultural festivals in the islands that really celebrate our diverse communities. If you've ever been to one of these events, they host things like live entertainment, food, crafts, and cultural displays. So you really, you go there, you get a sense of the different cultural events and just things like that. For my story, I talked to volunteers who organized three of these events um, that returned this year. So the Okinawan Festival, the Honolulu Intertribal Powwow, and a Day in Portugal Festa. So basically when I spoke to these volunteers, I think the biggest takeaway was that you know, these festivals mean a lot to their communities. They're a way to promote and preserve the culture. It's a way to gather, especially if you haven't seen some people in maybe a year or since the past festival. So they're, they're really more than events. And so that's why over the past two years during the pandemic, these events are really missed. And so one of those volunteers I talked to was May Prieto. She's a longtime member and also a past president of the Oahu Intertribal Council, which hosts powwow. And so her mom was actually one of the, the founders of the council. And so May and her family have kind of been to every powwow since it began almost 50 years ago. She has a lot of memories of going with her family and working in the fry booth or picking people mm-hmm. up from the airport. They do bring in performing groups from the continent. So it's, it's really interesting because she still feels spiritually connected to her mom, even though her mom died in 2013. And she says she feels her presence the most during powwow. She comes to the powwow, you know, I can feel her tapping on my shoulder or, you know, I can hear her whispering or, you know, feels like she's pulling my ear or, you know, you know, she's always saying something. So I know she's there at the powwow with us. And so another important thing to talk about with these festivals is the, the army of volunteers that put them on. For example, for the powwow, May is just one of nine people who are in charge of organizing the whole two-day event, which is really inspiring in a way. You know, nine people can organize this event that thousands of people attend. So they're expecting this year about 2,000 people to come, and they typically need about 200 volunteers during the two-day festival to run it. And so for the Okinawan festival, those those numbers are, are much different. The festival has been around since the 1980s. And so this year, they're expecting about 40,000 people over the two-day festival, which is actually a decrease from 2019. Clarice Kobashigawa is this year's festival chair. They're not really sure if as many people will come as in previous years because of the pandemic and just other things. But she is part of a 30 to 40 member planning committee. 
That's their core organizers. And so over the two-day festival, they typically will need about 2,000 to 4,000 volunteers to work it. All the food booths, they, they cook the food, the ondagi, the ondadogs, which are crowd favorites. And that also includes all the performing groups, all the students who do dances, who sing, who play instruments. Yeah, it's a big deal. So they need an army of, of folks helping to put it on. For sure. It's interesting, too, because many of the Okinawan families who attend and run the event, they've been doing it since the event started. So Clarice is one of those families, and so she remembers when she was a kid growing up, going to the festival when it was at Kapiolani Park. One of the most powerful things of our organization is the members that make up, especially the umbrella group of the Hawaii United Okinawan Association, because you just meet so many people who are truly so dedicated to promoting and preserving the culture. And of course that, you know, goes hand in hand with that is the festival. And so once you realize that it's really not about you yourself, right, but about this amazing group of individuals who all come together, it, you know, becomes doable because you're leaning on each other. And we should probably mention too, right, this year it is at the convention center and it is different from years past when it was just kind of open, anybody could come down. But at the convention center, they actually are charging, I think, an admission. But it's great because I know the the organizers have said it's air conditioned, right? And it's not so much of a strain on the volunteers who have to put up the tents. And and so it's a lot, uh, I guess, more user friendly for the organizers and then also for the participants. Yeah, so as many of us know, the Okinawan Festival did change venues. So they were at Kapiolani Park for many years. And then a few years ago, they shifted to the convention center. And so that's kind of a a different beast in its own in terms of planning. But there also are benefits, you know, with the parking, it's indoors. It's a little more easier for the kupuna to navigate. So, yeah, they're excited to bring it back to the convention center this year after two years of holding it virtually. I'd like to know an important thing about these festivals, too, is of course the live entertainment and so I actually talked to one of the the Okinawan Festival longtime performing groups so Grant Murata has been teaching Sanshin which is a Okinawan string instrument since he was 19 years old and he's 60 this year and so he's taking about 60 of his students to the Okinawan Festival and he's all actually himself performed at every festival since it began. I think the uh, organizers of the Okinawan Festival, their interest was to see if they could highlight the younger entertainers so that they can uh, showcase a proportion of the, the their community that is trying to carry on the tradition. So, you know, I, I felt that I'm doing my part in training these younger guys. So the Okinawan Festival returns in person Labor Day weekend, September 3rd and 4th at the Convention Center. Also, the powwow is scheduled for the following weekend, uh, September 10th and 11th at Bishop Museum. And some other upcoming festivals include the Aloha Festivals, the Hispanic Heritage Festival, and the Festivals of Aloha. So a lot to look forward to. Yeah, and the one thing I'm sure that everybody's looking forward to is just that it's in person and they can uh, reconnect with friends and family. Yes, for sure. That's that's an exciting part for them. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jana. Thank you, Catherine. We have been talking with Jana Omai. Uh, you can check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org.
today's Backyard Quiz, we tested your knowledge of Honolulu Zoo's first residence. Our local menagerie started off in 1877 as a small section of Kapiolani Regional Park where King Kalakaua displayed his private bird collection. In 1914, the city assumed responsibility for the animal displays at the park and hired its first park director, Ben Hollinger. It was Hollinger that began collecting more animals to establish a zoo. His collection began with a monkey, a bear, and an African elephant named Daisy, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Daisy was a passenger on a steamship making its way from Australia to Canada in 1916 when it pulled into port at Honolulu Harbor and subsequently uh, purchased by the city. Now, the collection expanded in 1949 with the purchase of several animals, including a camel, sea lions, and spider monkeys, and again in 1974 with the donation of chimpanzees and deer. Today, there are approximately 900 different animals from the tropics that reside at the Honolulu Zoo. And we had no winners today, but we invite you to go down and visit those animals at the zoo. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Island Community Health Center, a merger of Bay Clinic and West Hawaii Community Health Center, now providing comprehensive health care on Hawaii Island. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. On the outskirts of Vienna, far from the touristy downtown, there's a hip-hop scene growing. You can take a tour of that scene with rising hip-hop star Hugo, whose family immigrated to Vienna when he was a kid. Learn about a different side of the city of music on the next installment of Sense of Place, Vienna, on World Cafe. Beginning this evening at 8. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. Chapter 1 You know, we call this Sleep Week because we've been looking at how sleep affects the body and the brain, education and the workplace. For our last story in our Sleep Week series, we're stepping away from human systems and societies altogether and taking a closer look at rest in the animal kingdom. That's right. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote took a trip to the Honolulu Zoo. You feel a difference, especially as the sun goes down. The air just becomes that much more cooler and more inviting. Uh, with that comes a little bit of strangeness just because things look different in the dark. We've actually had staff members get lost here in the dark sometimes. They've worked here for years, but at night things look different. Charles Lee is the Interim Director of Education at the Honolulu Zoo. He's offered to be our tour guide for the evening so we can get a sense of just how the zoo transforms after dark. <coughs> A few animals act as timekeepers for the zoo, sounding off as the sun goes down and letting everyone know it's time to clock out. It's Moxie. Mm. 
That's a lion's roar, a lion's chuff. Uh, Moxie does usually like to use it in this area because the rocks provide great acoustics to make it louder. Now, kind of like with some of the other animals we talked about, she'll often do this usually in the mornings and in the evenings as a way to remind everyone that she's healthy and strong and this is her territory. So again, same reason why roosters crow. You know, except here in Hawaii, the roosters might go off at 2 a.m. sometimes. <laughs> now that's an interesting sleep cycle I want to know about because not all of those animals are in the zoo. Uh, in any case, as you may have heard though, they don't really sound like what you would expect a lion to. And that's movie magic for you. So most of the time in movies and televisions, you might be looking at a lion, but you're actually listening to something else. Usually a tiger roar. Tigers actually are supposed to have the scariest roar of any cat. They even hit what we call the fear frequency, where it generates terror and panic in whatever hears them to flush out prey. But because lions are actually roaring to let everyone know they're there instead of to scare something out, they actually have a much louder roar. They are believed to have one of the loudest roars of any cat. It's said in Africa that if you're close enough, you can actually feel the air shake from a lion's roar. I say if you're that close, it's not the roar you should be worrying about. The visitors have gone home, but a few creatures are just waking up. What animal do you think has the best lifestyle? Hmm. Porcupines, I think, have it pretty good. Oh, if you look over here, you can see they're still tucked in sleeping. We have two sisters, Poe and Grunt. Now, they're nocturnal, so they'll come out when it's nice and cool. They don't have to bother with the hot, sunny day. But because, well, they have such spiky quills, they're not often bothered by too many animals, and the ones that do bother them, well, they get the point soon enough. What time does the zoo close to visitors? So guests are allowed to normally stay inside until four o'clock. So if you have a creature like a porcupine that's nocturnal, how do you balance the fact that when visitors are here and want to learn about the animal and see it in action, that's also the time when they're sleeping? That is true. Now, fortunately, there's always exceptions to the rule. Now, some zoos do have what we call night houses where they actually have completely enclosed areas where the, the lighting is turned off and the animals can maneuver around. But even with our porcupines, in the mornings, they'll still be fairly active as long as it's nice and cool and you can see them forage. At the same time, during the day, our keepers also try to have enrichment or training sessions with them, sometimes on exhibit, so people are able to see them that way. Mm -hmm. And of course, well, sometimes we're lucky enough we see them on our evening programs as well. Okay, okay. And, that, and there's no detriment to the porcupine for having to kind of diverge from what they might normally do? That's correct, because they're still going to get their maximum amount of sleep necessary. The staff members at the zoo do everything they can to make sure the animals are comfortable, but they can't control their neighbors. So this is our largest mixed species exhibit containing both giraffe and zebra. If you take, hey Squirt, how's it going? So this is actually one of our giraffes over here. Actually, oh, this is Neelix, by the way. So Neelix is the middle child. <laughs> over there on the far left, you can see his half-sister Sandy and Squirt, our big male giraffe, is the 51st giraffe born at the zoo and he's hanging out with Mr. Z, the zebra. Now, as you can hear, there is a road that goes right by. I believe that's Pocky Street. And so that's always been one of our biggest concerns here at the zoo. And that's also why we have our barns. Now, most animals, again, do have access to their exhibit at night with the exception of, say, the lions are a great example, but also the giraffe and zebra. And that's just to avoid them getting stressed out by what's going on over here. 
And so in the barns, we know they're nice and safe. And so they can't trip or injure themselves on exhibit if they're startled by a fire engine or someone revving their motorcycle. So if a, if a giraffe, for instance, waits up, mm -hmm. right, because a fire truck passes or we just heard a helicopter overhead, they don't necessarily know what that sound means. Are they able to like roll over and go back to bed, brush it off, or will that animal be awake for a while? Great question. So although each animal and each individual is different in intelligence, they are capable of learning. Again, that's how we train our animals here. And so they do learn and get used to the fact that sirens cannot hurt them. They might be annoying, but they don't last forever. They usually go right past them. These animals are able to resume a sleep cycle if they happen to be sleeping during that time. Again, they tend to nap for 10 minutes, 15 minutes at a time before they wake up and again, get active again. Now, when it comes to sleeping, when they're lying down, they're not gonna suddenly spring up anyway, so it won't bother them in that sense. Otherwise, they will sleep standing up. And so at that point, they're already able to act if there is a predator in the area, which is pretty good. And what do we know about why giraffes sleep in su such, such short bursts? Again, we think that at least in the wild, it has to do with vigilance and just making sure that they do not become the special of the day. Mm, and But they still do that here in this environment where they're safer? Not as much. Again, we've seen some like squirt to take much longer naps, and especially during the daytime. So yeah, again, there's some deviation there as well. Giraffes may be the zoo's best nappers, but there's one creature that's unmatched when it comes to all-nighters. Over here is Mari. And so these are our female Asian elephants. Uh, Mari, as the senior elephant, is the matriarch of our herd here at the zoo. In elephants, the oldest, wisest female is in charge because an elephant never forgets. Right now, she's dusting, so she's actually using mud and dirt as a way to not only keep cool, keep the sun off her back, but at night it will protect her against mosquitoes and other biting insects. They basically just get a mouthful of dirt. And elephants are remarkably intelligent. Not, it feel like they are the ultimate ace. I mean, they're massive and powerful. They're intelligent. They can even swim and use their trunks as snorkels. And again, they have a similar lifespan to people, but they can get by on only about four hours of sleep. So that's one of the great mysteries out there. <laughs> Do we have any theories as to why they need so much less sleep? Hmm, I'm sure there are, but we there haven't been any studies completed that have been able to test it. And oh, with a lot of conservation and research, a lot of these studies were put on hold during the pandemic. Now, as restrictions are easing, we are hoping that people will be able to go out there and study them some more, actually collect more data on them. The more we know about these animals, the better we can protect them. So if elephants are only getting four hours of sleep and there's 24 hours in the day, how are they spending the other 20 hours? Crossword puzzles? In the wild, the majority of their day is dedicated to walking and looking for food. These are massive animals. And so Mari's about 9,000 pounds, give or take a few hundred. And so she would needs several hundred pounds, maybe five or 600 pounds of food a day just to keep going in the wild. Now here at the zoo, they need only about half as much because they're not looking, well, because their food is provided for them, they do not need to walk constantly. Mm. Now, fortunately, she still has enough space to get that exercise in. She actually lost weight when, she and Vigai lost weight when we moved them in here. But the key for all of our animals is 
enrichment. Enrichment is, again, like I said, something that can keep them stimulated and active. Elephants are so intelligent, sometimes they can make their own enrichment, whether we want them to or not. If you look right now, she's grabbing her truck tire, one of her favorite toys. Sometimes she'll just put it on her foot. Oh, if you come over here, you can see it a bit better. She likes to wear it on her foot and wear it as a bracelet. People often come up and voice their concern that the elephant's trapped, but she actually likes jewelry that way. She even <laughs> has several toys, including harmonicas in the back. What's interesting is that tire is made out of rubber, so of course it's an insulator. It doesn't block electricity. They also have giant plastic boomer balls that do the same thing. And just to highlight how intelligent and creative these animals are, Vigai, our other female, has actually figured out that, again, these objects block electricity, and so she will regularly roll them up against the electric fence just to grab extra leaves and snack on. In fact, if you take a look at these hollow trees growing here, they're nice and healthy on our side, but you can see on the elephant side, they're kind of stripped away at an angle, and so that's all Vigai's handiwork over there. So if Mari and Vigai don't have to spend the same amount of time that they would in the wild, as you said, just feeding themselves, mm -hmm. do they sleep more or are they still locking in about four hours? We think they're still clocking in at about four hours. And so they're just spending the rest of their day with other pursuits, whether it's using their pool or again, taking mud baths as well. We are, on, in Vigai's case, snacking on the side. We will actually fill some of that time too. So many of our animals, especially our elephants, have training sessions daily with our keepers where we basically use some of their favorite treats as rewards to teach them specific behaviors. And these behaviors are of course used to better take care of them. They know how to present their feet so we can cut their toenails and scrape their pads, make sure there aren't not any rocks stuck in there. They also have a bath time every day just to get the old dirt off. And once the elephant's nice and sparkly clean, they'll just throw a new layer of dirt right on top of that. In the wild, sleep is a vulnerable state. That's why giraffes only nap in such short bursts, and monkeys and lemurs crawl high into the trees in order to stay safe. Even a tiger will take a long patrol of its territory, looking for other tigers, before it beds down for the night. And you can see those behaviors right here in the zoo, even though the zookeepers work around the clock to make sure the animals are comfortable. Lee says we should keep this in mind, that sleep can be a kind of luxury before we so readily go without it. I feel like knowing that we should definitely appreciate the moments we have to sleep. Whether we have you know, just a few minutes for a quick cat nap or we have an entire evening from sunup to sundown. I think yeah, every moment of shut eye we get, we should appreciate it. That was Charles Lee, Interim Director of Education at the Honolulu Zoo. He was giving HPR Savannah Harriman Pote an after dark tour. You can find that at hawaiipublicradio.org along with all of our sleep stories from this week. And that's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we're going to take a closer look at polio in the islands. We'll hear from one of the oldest survivors of the crippling disease, former Honolulu City Councilman Lee Waidu. What are your thoughts on polio? Remember getting the sugar cubes in grade school? Call our talkback line. Leave your comments. That's 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at hawaiipublicradio.org or write to us at talkback. Uh, you can also listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. 
Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pope, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song. And we bid aloha to our summer intern, Emily Tom, who heads back to Brown. Thanks to John DeMello for our Backyard Quiz intro and Gypsy 808 for our theme music. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Thank you.